what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds. Oh my God, have I got an episode for you today. We are joined by not one fantastic mind, but two fantastic minds within the world of veterinary cannabis. I am talking about none other than Liz Houston and Steven Sattal, both within uh, their realms, um, experts on cannabis, but then also, uh, let's talk about Liz for a minute. Liz not only practices as a relief veterinary um, technician like I do, uh, but she also is a double V. VTS. She is a VTS in ECC and small animal internal medicine. Um, she is a registered veterinary technician in the state of California. She has won the California RVT uh, RVT of the Year Award. She is a lecturer, an educator, and all around just badass. And she also is very, very knowledgeable in all things veterinary cannabis. So we're going to talk to her. And then we're also going to talk to Stephen I don't think I even need to do an introduction on Steven Sattal because you guys in Anesthesia Nerds land know that Steven is amazing. He has more letters after his name than, uh, than we have time for, honestly, on this podcast. He not only is a co-author of the, cannabis, the veterinary cannabis textbook, but he also is a surgical research anesthetist. He works for Stanford University. He is a VTS in lab animal medicine and also a veterinary cannabis expert. So today's focus is going to be on veterinary cannabis, how we are using it, when we should be using it, what does the evidence really say, and you know what are those questions of legality that we sometimes get asked. So let's get into it. Thank you, Liz and Stephen, for joining Thanks me Thanks so much for having us, Tasha. Thanks, yeah. All right. So first off the bat, since this is going to focus on uh, cannabis and within the realm of veterinary medicine, one of the first things that I'm sure that you guys hear and that I've heard, you know, just in my pain management practice is from technicians and from clinicians that we're not really sure if this is even legal. So I don't want to talk about it with my clients. And then technicians are worried about talking about it with clients. Um, what are the legalities of it? Why does there, why does there seem to be still this kind of like hush hushness around the legality of, you know, any veterinary oh God, cannabis Do you want product? to start Lizzie? Oh, you're pointing at me. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, this is a little bit of a, a long and, and convoluted story, um, and it's it's made even more complicated because we have states that have legalized the use of recreational and medicinal cannabis, and that's where I think we should start is with the term cannabis. So cannabis sativa L is a genus of this plant, and under this plant, there's multiple other plants, uh, which include uh, industrial hemp or hemp. Uh, marijuana or ruderalis. Ruderalis is kind of the ugly stepchild. We don't really talk about it very much. But the other two have very specific legal definitions. Um, hemp specifically in 2018 has a legal definition of having less than 0.3% THC, which is a fun molecule, the thing that you get high off of. Uh, by dry weight, marijuana is anything greater than that. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, a bunch of other states kind of fought that definition. I think Texas wanted it to even go up to 1%. So hoorah for Texas. But um, so right now, the legal definition is really for plants that have less than 0.3% THC, which are considered hemp that can be sold over the counter. And that was signed into law in 2018 with the Pharmac bill. With that said, the Pharmac bill also left it up to the states to decide, hey, how, however you want to regulate this, you can, but you can't make it illegal 
for the transportation of hemp products to be coming through your state. Now, with that said, I think all but really two two states when it comes to industrial hemp are really the ones that I would kind of stay away from having these conversations as openly as maybe you could, and certainly not stocking them in your in your practice. And those states would be South Dakota and uh, Idaho, specifically. Um, other than that, I am pretty comfortable when it comes to hemp products. Uh, telling people that you can talk about their use, you can talk about um, their potentials in veterinary medicine, and you can certainly sell them, whether that's through your clinic or some other shop, um, legally. Uh, and I, th- I think that's pretty clear in state law uh, that has been written. And then certainly the lack of enforcement in states where maybe things are still a little bit gray, because uh, oftentimes, like we see in so many other areas, it takes a, a while for the, the law to catch up to what is being done out in the real world. Um, so long of the short is when it comes to hemp products, yes, they are legal uh, throughout the United States. There's a couple of states that need some better clarification. Nevada, California, I think have the strongest language for veterinary professionals actually discussing and utilizing these products in animals. Uh, whereas marijuana, even if it's legal in your state, I am still a little cautious about that just because if you have a DEA license, marijuana is still a Schedule One at the federal level. Um, are they really going to enforce things? Probably not. But I do think it's it's better to err on the side of caution. And I mean, really, the science isn't saying we need a whole lot of THC for anything. So I'm I'm not inclined to recommend marijuana or super high THC products anyway. Yeah, I agree with everything Stephen said. I think. Um particularly of particular note is California, where they recently um, clarified the language to allow veterinarians to recommend cannabis products for their patients, which is a huge jump. So first, when hemp, when, when California legalized both medical and recreational cannabis, meaning really marijuana, as far as everyone was concerned in California, um, they specifically barred veterinarians from even talking about it. So even if a client brought it up, a veterinarian couldn't Mm. talk about it. And because uh, that came that came out, that guidance came out from the Veterinary Medical Board, there was a real um, reticence and and non-reluctance? What? No, reluctance is the word I'm looking for. Uh, reluctance to discuss uh, because they were concerned because it was, it was confusing. So what that left was this big giant hole of information where we couldn't help people choose the right product. We couldn't help guide them um, in terms of is cannabis even the best thing for you to consider for whatever it is you're thinking about using it for? Because there was this real chilling effect that the, where the VMB basically said, don't even discuss it. If you discuss it, your license is on the line. Then the law changed. Actually, Stephen is very modest because he was instrumental in helping get this law changed to allow veterinarians first to just discuss it. There was a, just a wording issue in the first round of the legislation. So then let, veterinarians were free to discuss it. And now that has all been fixed and they're free to recommend it. And that is a huge thing because it brings the veterinarian back into the discussion where they belong. And I truly believe that in discussions, you know, tangential to this, like nutrition, um, the veterinarian should be in the center of that discussion. They should be the people having those discussions with the clients to help the patients. And we shouldn't be, um, 
we shouldn't be giving up our right to have those conversations to uh, people on the internet, influencers, or pet store employees, in my opinion. Whether that be cannabis, food, you know, training materials, training techniques, whatever it might be, I think really veterinary professionals should be in the center of those conversations. So I'm really pleased to see what California has done in this, and I hope that other states uh, take note of that and start uh, moving in that direction as well. We also can't forget that uh, AVMA kind of muddied the water mm. a, little, mm. a little bit as well. Um, in the early days, especially before a lot of the studies came out, you know, the AVMA was definitely saying, we're not allowed to talk about it, don't talk about it, etc. They've since done a 180 and say, we have an F ethical obligation to discuss these things with our clients, which is different than, quote unquote, prescribing or recommending these products. Um, and and just for clarity, and when we talk about legality, these hemp-derived CBD products are no different than any other animal supplement or nutraceutical that we are giving out there. So we can talk about them the safe way or in the same way and the safe way <laughs> about utilizing them. Um Again, not making promises that they are going to treat, mitigate, prevent uh, a disease because that would require FDA approval. And uh, so it's, it's it's really no different than any other nutraceutical right. or supplement. Yeah. If you're yeah. a veterinar veterinarian listening to this and you send ProViable Home or Dasequin mm -hmm. or uh, Blood Dirt, <laughs> Yunnan Biao, if you send these things home, um, <laughs> you... There's no reason for you to not to do the same thing with cannabis. Right. All right. So there's a lot of information here. And I, what I've noticed in the past couple of years is the cannabis, the availability of the products and the variety of the products has really exploded um, from going to these conferences where maybe we will see one or two companies with products. Now we have a whole bunch of different companies with products, some, you know, um, CBD based products. I've now seen some that are like, not only do we have CBD, but we have CBG in here as well. We have CBN. Um, I mean, what did these things mean? What is the mechanism of action of these things? And why is one different than the other? Um, it just seems like a lot of letters in here. And then when you start to read about the endocannabinoid system, um, I don't know if you guys watched Ted Lasso, but um, if you ever heard the chant for Roy Kent where they're like, He's here. He's there. He's every fucking where. And that's why I feel about the endocannabinoid system. I was like, it's it's over here, but it's also pr part of this tissue and it's over there too. So it's, it's just every fucking where. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. That is part of the exciting, the exciting part of cannabis medicine. Really a lot of different kind of quote unquote natural or herbal medica medications or supplements. Um, that's the exciting part and the frustrating part. Because truly, the endocannabinoid system is everywhere. <laughs> and it's in every creature, every creature on the planet with a spinal cord. If you have a vertebrae, you have an endocannabinoid system. And there are some creatures without vertebrae that also have an endocannabinoid system. And it is literally everywhere because it is the system that that ensures homeostasis of all types of different body systems. And it does make it immensely complicated. But it also makes it a really interesting target for lots of different things. And we can, and we're just starting to learn really all the ways that we can interact with the system and manipulate it to the benefit of every creature on the planet with an endocannabinoid system. Let me take a second to talk about 
alphabet soup, and then I'll pass it over to Stephen for um, mechanism of action stuff. So these CBs, you know, CBN, CBG, CBD, CB whatever, um, and THC, and you'll see THCV, THC delta 9, THC delta 8, THCA, all of these letters. Um, CB before any other letter, tells you it's a cannabinoid. And what that means is the molecule comes from the cannabis plant. And the cannabis plant makes over 116, I think, at last count, and there are more um, molecules that only the cannabis plant makes. There's no other plant on the planet that makes those molecules. Do all the CBs go into that category? And then THC is another big one. There was a group that thought they had CBD from hops, but it turned out they didn't. Um, it wasn't actually CBD, so we're still just left with cannabis to get these molecules. Um, THC, as Stephen alluded to earlier, that's the quote-unquote fun molecule. That's the inebriating molecule, the one that makes people and dogs most notably, I think, feel high. And I think a lot of your listeners will have experience with those pot dogs that come in. Um, and then we have the CBs. So CBD, CBN, CBG, and each of those, it turns out, have some separate um, and distinct medicinal properties, which make them really, really interesting. Um, and I'm going to pass it off to Stephen on that. Yeah. And as far as what these different cannabinoids, these phytocannabinoids are useful for, is kind of still up in the air. The most evidence we have is for CBD, uh, cannabidiol, and uh, delta-9-THC, uh, just because of their popularity and concentrations within the plant. Um, interestingly enough, some of the, the A versions, the acidic versions, and the non-decarboxylated forms of these compounds that come from the plant, um, and when I say they're decarboxylated, it means a carboxyl group has been removed from their molecular change, either chemically, by heat, oxidation, etc. <clears throat> but these acidic forms work quite differently than the decarboxylated forms. So there's something like CBDA, and then there's CBD. CBDA is going to work more like a steroid or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory as far as mechanism of action, in that it may be COX inhibiting versus something like CBD or regular THC, which are not COX inhibiting at all. And actually, we have data to prove that that is even opposite in, in some cases, especially with THC, where we hear things like CBD <clears throat> being useful for things like anti-inflammatory properties. Again, it's not the same kind of mechanism of action as our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, we know at the, the top of the inflammatory cascade, we have this fun chemical arachidonic acid. And when CB, when our endocannabinoids, these cannabinoids that your body produces, similar to endogenous opioids are produced, they need to be broken down into something. And one of the things that they turn into is arachidonic acid, which starts this whole inflammatory cascade. So the idea behind adding CBD is that we will slow the production of arachidonic acid, which will then slow the inflammatory cascade. And hey, if you mix that with some acidic versions, THCA, CBDA, CBGA, you're also going to have that non-steroidal or steroidal-like effect as well. So it's kind of like a multimodal... Um, uh, pain management protocol all in one. And, and talking about 
two different receptors. So we're we're generally talking about, at least with the endocannabinoid system, the CB1 and CB2 receptor. There's also this well-accepted and proven theory that these compounds, these phytocannabinoids, things like CBD, etc., are, are also quite promiscuous, and they like to hang out with other uh, receptors, uh, whether that's the GPR55, which is instrumental and almost was considered another opioid receptor. Uh, we have the TRIP-V or the vanilloid or capsaicin receptor. We also have some affinity to. And then I think kind of the interesting part, and this is where it's like, hey, are these compounds working for actual pain or is it up in our head a little bit? We have some affinity for dopamine and serotonin receptors as well. Um, and, and I, I think, you know, Liz likes to talk about the THC and kind of the mind altering effects and how that might actually be the quote unquote pain management that we're experiencing, not necessarily a decrease or dampening and no susceptive firing or, or signaling. Okay. So what you're saying is just to make sure that I have it right. Um, you're. Are you using a um, like a CBDA product and a CB like a CBD and a CBA, or are you saying that when you're using a CBD, it has the CB? So Liz and I are both fans of full and broad spectrum products. So that means they have a little bit of all the things. So it truly is a multimodal analgesic formula. Um, But what we don't know yet is the specific concentrations and the specific phytocannabinoids that are going to be perfect for each kind of disease process. So we're talking about pain broadly right now. So I do like to see a mix of a bunch of different phytocannabinoids because I know we're going to be hitting different targets. I, there oh, are, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no worries. There, there are isolate products out there, um, but they have been proven time and time again to be not as effective as these full or broad spectrum products. I think you can. There are companies now that are really focused on highlighting and maintaining the acidic form, the raw form of the cannabinoid in their final product. So there are a couple of products out there that are, that are doing that, that are focused on these acidic forms. But there, most products, to be fair, um, making sure that you preserve the acidic forms of these molecules is difficult because it requires special handling, often refrigeration, because like Stephen said, when this chemical change happened, this removal of the carboxyl group, that decarboxylation, de- <laughs> yes, I said it correctly. <laughs> when we decarboxylate <laughs> these products, that can happen with age, heat, drying, a change in pH. So handling and pr- how you process this materials it really matters for what you're going to get in the final product. So you need to, when we look at these products, and I think this is something that is really important to emphasize for anyone who wants to use these products or recommend them, is to look for products where you can see that certificate of analysis for any product that you want to buy. And this is a laboratory report, preferably an independent third-party laboratory that's looking at... um, well, whatever the company submits, honestly, and really the best products, the best companies um, do triple testing. So they test the plant when it's harvested. They test the first extraction from that plant by whatever extraction method they want to use. And then they're testing the final product that's on the shelf at the end. So that that is really for me, one of the key steps, that final product testing, because you have a product on the shelf. Um, 
that you have probably taken some, whatever you've gotten from your cannabis plant and mixed it with a base oil, like hemp oil or sesame seed oil or an MCT oil or something like that. And so that final testing is really important so that you know that that product that you're that you are ingesting or you're giving to your pet or your client is giving to their pet is safe. It's, it has what you expect it to have in it and it doesn't have the things that you don't want it to have in it. Cannabis is an amazing, what we, what they call a phytoremediator. So it's a plant that you can put in like a brownfield, for example. I mean, East Palestine, Ohio should be investing heavily in hemp, in my opinion. They should be planting they should be just throwing seeds where that train derailed because hemp cannabis, when it grows, it sucks everything out of the soil, heavy metals, contaminants, all kinds of bad stuff that's in brown sites, black sites, dirty soil. It cleans the soil and it pulls all of that up into the plant. Now, those are plants that you don't want to then turn around and make something that you would ingest from, but you could make paper or, you know, fiber products or things like that, that, um, later on down the line. And in the meanwhile, you're going to clean the soil. But that's why that COA is so, one other reason why that COA is so important. One is to see what are the constituents phytocannabinoids and terpenes that you're going to be providing when you have this product in your hand and you're about to give it to a pet and what what are the bad things that are in that are, or making sure that the bad things aren't in there is really more to the point. So, and there are a few companies that are doing that really well. Um, there are a lot of companies that are doing that really, really poorly. And unfortunately, the shitty ones are the ones that are on the shelf in the pet stores. And um, most of those companies, they don't release their COAs. They tell you that it's proprietary, as if the pet owner is going to go out and try and make their own cannabis product. It's ridiculous. Um, and so they won't give you that information. And those those products... I really steer folks away from. And I think that is another reason why it's important that the veterinarian and that veterinary staff is, is in these conversations, is integral to these conversations. Right. And as an example, Liz, what year did that, you do that study? <laughs> when did that study come out? 2021? Yeah. But yeah. Where we, we pulled 30 cannabinoid containing products and the most expensive ones are the ones that actually didn't have any CBD in it. This is just for the study. This, this doesn't, this is not a generalization for all products. And then there was a few products that had such high levels of lead in it. They're legally not allowed to be sold in the United States, but they were still on the shelf. So, you know, I, as Liz kind of mentioned, if they're unwilling to give you a full certificate of analysis, which you can see what that's supposed to look like on our website, don't buy it. Yeah. And even even if it's from a trusted veterinary brand that you've right. heard of before, if they're unwilling to give you a full certificate of analysis, don't buy it. Yeah. And I and it's really important because Tasha, you brought up the point. Like, what am I giving? Is this CBD? It says it's cannabis oil, it's CBD oil. Like, what is this thing? And it could be any number of things. It could be, like Stephen said, an isolate where the company just took out the one molecule that they wanted. Maybe they just bought the molecule from a lab or, you know, a producer, which is a thing you can do. And that's called white labeling products, uh, where they just buy uh, this white powder that someone told them was CBD, and then they put it in oil, and then they sell it. Uh, or they could be, there are several companies who are growing their own product and then taking it from there. And so they're really 
the stewards of that product because they're making sure the plant is consistent, that it's producing the cannabinoid profile that they want consistently. And they're doing that testing. They're testing every single harvest, every batch. And that's the kind of investment that that I want to see because I, I know it's safe and I know exactly what's in it. And so this all was a divergence from the handling and how do you know you have acids or not and making sure that you're handling appropriately. And like I said, these companies have to be really focused on preserving those acidic forms if that's what they want in their final product. And we have a few companies that are doing that. One that that promised me that it's coming out very soon, maybe in the next couple months. <laughs> that's from uh, VetCS. So they don't currently have a product that has high levels of CBDA, but they're working on one right now. Elevet is probably the most well-known one. It has um, a one-to-one ratio of CBD to CBDA in the product. Um, and I think that's the product that was used in the initial osteoarthritis study. And I think the results they saw from that were maybe, maybe entirely attributed to the amount of CBDA in that product. And maybe that's why we're not seeing similar results in other studies done on different products because they don't have that high level of CBDA, which is, um, again, why it's really important to take a look at the the COA, the, the certificate of analysis of the product that you may want to recommend while you're considering, like, what is it that this the owner is trying to achieve? for this pet. What are they trying to do? So here on anesthesia nerds, you know, we're focused mainly on pain control, you know, function, right? How can we even maybe help uh, mitigate the amounts of anesthetic drugs we need to use? This is a whole other uh, topic, perhaps for a later podcast. Um, But something like seizure control. So we're learning about a molecule like CBG, which apparently has some really potent effects in the central nervous system. And it is um, maybe something that's going to be good for canine cognitive dysfunction. Um, We haven't studied it yet, but I think it has potential there. We know that it may, well, I say we know that it may. We have some evidence pointing to, to it having really good effect in seizure control and other neurological conditions. Um, so it, it's a really interesting molecule that really just needs more study at this point. But if I have a patient, let's say, I know you love cases here on veterinary anesthesia nerds. So let's say I have a 12-year-old Labrador retriever. He has arthritis and he started having seizures. So for me, if that if that pet owner's goal is they want their pet to um, have, you know, be more comfortable, to have a little bit more ability, more mobility, and to reduce the frequency and severity of their seizures, then I'm going to look for a product. And I don't know that it's one product. It's probably a couple products. I'm going to look for a product that has some CBD, some CBG, and some CBDA. And again, like I said, I may have to combine a couple of products to get to what it is that I want to help that owner meet the goals for that pet. Um, and I have done that. Uh, honestly, mixing, lot, recommending, you know, a combination of two or three different products to get to that um cocktail that I, that I want to hit, but all from cannabis. So not adding in any other medications or drugs. Just to keep it kind of case-based when we're talking about, because 
And I'm a CVPP, uh, Stephen, you're also a certified veterinary pain practitioner. And I know that most of the time when I'm talking about uh, or talking with clients about CBD products, it's even in the context of chronic pain, right? As an adjunct to other medications for chronic pain. Um, is there any place or do we have any evidence for uh, CBD products or any of these cannabinoid products in acute pain management? Like, is there any evidence or kind of space for those if we have a patient that came in with, I don't know, uh, severe pancreatitis or uh, got hit by a car or has trauma? Um, what's the deal I with like acute pain? I have not seen any studies um, for acute pain specifically or looking for acute pain. They've The eight or nine studies I can think of have all been OA models. Um, and they were all positive except for one of them, uh, Alacrop out of Colorado State University, which was by and large a, an isolate product. So I would have expected that. Um, but we don't really have studies published yet. I know there's some unpublished data out there. I'm not shy about using it. However, I am not at the point where I want to use it as a first or even a second line analgesic. I'll use it as a third or maybe a second if we have a really good first line analgesic. But I, I'm not sold on using CBD products alone for acute pain. Um, However, there is a little bit of a caveat there, and it's going back to the seizure example. There was a cool study done by a lab a couple doors down from us looking at the post-ictal state. And what they found was that when a creature is having a seizure, there's this huge, huge surge of these endocannabinoids that are flooding the brain to protect the brain. Uh, that's that's our job. As we mentioned, uh, the, the endocannabinoid system is important for our homeostasis, so they produce the the body produces this large amount of endocannabinoids, and then, as I mentioned earlier, those endocannabinoids need to be broken down into something, and oftentimes that's that's arachidonic acid. And so, you know, I was talking to my boss, who's a professor here, and I was like, you know, I think I have a a, a resolution for <laughs> this uh, discovery that they found all these endocannabinoids circulating around, circulating around that's causing this painful or uncomfortable feeling in the postictal state. I bet CBD would help with that. So, but other than that, I, I am not necessarily there at this point. Um, I do think if you are in a palliative care situation, maybe a super duper experienced practitioner with cannabinoids, you could make the argument for higher doses of THC. But that, again, is not necessarily hitting those receptors in the same way we want as maybe like an opioid would, right? It's changing the conscious perception of the pain state rather than actual decreasing pain. And it's, to me, too much of a gamble to change this conscious perception of pain with THC because it can cause anxiety. It causes anxiety a lot in our canine patients. And that's something I think we're all pretty familiar with. Some of them cause anxiety in me. I'm, I mean, ooh, man, I've definitely had some where I'm like, okay, we are all going to die. We're all going to die right now. You guys were going to die. So yeah, I can't imagine yeah. like a Jack Russell yeah. Terrier on that. That's so interesting. <laughs> I just read a study. I thought about sending it to Stephen, but I didn't because I wasn't super excited about it. But it was about um, looking at THC and anxiety in rats mm -hmm. and whether they could demonstrate an anxiolytic or um, an anti-anxiolytic effect. And um, it, wa it was interesting. It, it, I, it, the problem with a lot of these studies is um, 
Manifold. So first of all, oftentimes you don't know what the components are of the molecules. This is true of all the studies, the OA studies, the pain studies, everything. If they're not using the exact same plant from study to study to study, it's hard to say whether or not you're, what, what the effects are you're getting, what they, what you can attribute those to or non-effects, honestly. Um, the method of administration. So people, uh, usually inhale cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become more and more common to ingest them, but ingesting and inhaling lead, can lead to vastly different effects. Uh, even if it, you just, just, let's just take THC as a single molecule just by itself, um, without anything else ingesting it in an oil or in some other form versus inhaling it is going to give you markedly different effects because your body's processing it in totally different ways, which means it's getting to your brain in totally different ways. So again, it leads us back to the excitement and frustration of studying these plants and the the molecules that come from them and how we can use them. So I always take those studies with a grain of salt because especially in rat studies, you know, they do intrathecal administration. Well, you know, nobody, I'm not going to take a needle and stick it in my spine to get, get myself some medication. You know, that's not going to happen. And most people aren't going to be doing that for their animals, right? Outside of the, outside of a, the setting of an animal hospital where they're getting an epidural for some purpose. Um, so until we get some more kind of real world examples of all of these things, it's hard for us, I think, to make general generalizations. And I think, again, that there's the frustration because a lot of it comes down to trial and error. Trying a different product with a different um, ratio of cannabinoids. And then we haven't really talked, we haven't talked at all about the other molecules that are present and, and those, the impact that those have on um, the overall effect of the product that you choose. And those are the, the terpenes. And y'all can buy our textbook and read my chapter on terpenes to learn more about that. Um, but anybody who does essential oil stuff, Young Living, doTERRA, anything like that, if you put, if you have a diffuser and you put lavender oil in your diffuser, you're taking advantage of terpenes. And we can do the same thing with our, with our pets too, for the effect we want to have. And terpenes have anti-anxiety effects. They have anti-pain effects. They have anti-seizure effects. So we can, we need to, and we can take advantage of all of those things as well. And as far as dosing, you, you had mentioned inhalation versus, um, orally consuming things. Uh, a myth that we hear quite a bit still is like, oh, you need to put it in the buckle space and you put it under the tongue and let it sit there, blah, blah, blah. That's a load of crap. Just give it in their food. We act, we have plenty of studies showing it actually gets absorbed better, especially with a little bit of a fatty meal. Um, and then certainly if the product has le- lecithin in it, uh, which often comes from sunflower oil, there is better bioavailability. And the acidic forms, I forgot to mention, are much more bioavailable compared to the decarboxylated forms. And, um, I, I want to also answer this myth question because people are like, what, why? Why do I get so much more high when I consume these things versus smoking it? And, you know, people that are new to these compounds, this is for human use, I'm not talking about animals, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to eat it instead for my first time instead of smoke it. I'm like, no, 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 let's not do that. Why don't you smoke it first? Uh, because when you consume THC, it turns into 11-hydroxy-THC, which is like significantly more potent than regular THC. So even though I may hit you low, uh, um, further out 
it's usually a lot longer and a lot less predictable uh, versus just smoking it. So those those metabolites themselves can be quite potent and and add to in some cases, a therapeutic benefit or other cases, the less uh, fun side of of cannabinoids. Yeah, I think that, you know, and the point I think here too for our veterinary friends, our our patients, our clients, is this is yet another reason to avoid products that are high in THC or products with THC at all beyond that 0.3% level that, that makes it federally legal and makes the product a hemp derivative. Um, dogs don't like to be high. And like I said, anyone who's worked in emergency medicine has had treated a pot dog, you know, you can see it's not an enjoyable experience for them. Um, you know, much like for some people, depending on the dose that they get. Um, it's not a pleasant experience. So the great news is that we don't need THC. That This is a myth, I think, that we can bust, which is um, people used to say, oh, you have to have a little bit of THC or the CBD won't work, quote unquote. Like, I don't understand what that means. That's not at all true. That uh, you needed THC to activate the CBD, not true. You don't need THC to do that. Um, Um, And in fact, there's very little that THC does that CBD can't also do and in many cases do better or the acidic forms. Now, THCA is a different animal altogether. The acidic form of THC, it is non-inebriating. You don't get high off of THCA. And it has some really interesting medicinal properties um, that hopefully we'll be taking advantage of in the future. Uh, but for right now, it's still not legal because it comes from marijuana. And so um, that makes it a little trickier in non-legal states. Okay. I mean, that that does make sense <laughs> with the, the THC versus the CBD. Um, and for the most part, again, in chronic pain management, I'm usually talking with clients about CBD products. Um, I, I haven't personally run into a, a canine or a feline on any THC products. Um, that's not to say that people aren't maybe reading something on the internet and trying stuff at home. Um, but I think that this, you guys have given us a ton of information um, for our listeners. If they're interested in getting more information, um, where can they get stuff from you guys? We will definitely put a link to your textbook in the show notes. Um, but if they wanted to come hear you speak um, or get some more information, where can they the find you best, guys? The first best place. Well, there are two good places. The first best place is probably the veterinary cannabinoid academy group on facebook which you know i think we'd all like to find a way to get rid of facebook maybe we'll make it a discord server or something in the future i'm not sure but um but for now veterinary cannabinoid academy on facebook is i think a really great place steven um, has taken upon himself to post a a new study every friday he does a science friday in there which is amazing we have great discussions um it's only open to veterinary professionals so uh, that I think is the real value of it is we don't have a lot of uh, pet owners or folks who don't um, work in the industry asking questions. So that's great. And then we have a website. Um, and I think Stephen, well, we can, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Vet Can Academy. Vet Can uh, Academy with two N's. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so that's our website. So, but the group is a little more dynamic than the website at this point. So. 
Speaking. Are you speaking anywhere soon on Great. cannabis? We'll definitely Steven? put that in the show notes. But Stephen is speaking. Oh in yeah, Canada, in September, correct? I'm speaking in Montreal uh, with Dr. McCune, uh, anesthesiologist. So she's going to do some anesthesia stuff. We're going to do some anesthesia stuff about doctors and technicians working together. And then I'm going to have a whole track of cannabinoid medicine, which is, uh, I think, pretty exciting. That's very exciting. I don't have any cannabis talks scheduled uh, coming up that I'm aware of, but it's only February. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say this. I can say this now. Uh, I am opening a a hospital in San Francisco with a great colleague of mine, um, and we will specifically be doing cannabinoid consults. So we will be able to provide uh, interested pet owners um, information on this, this therapy if they're so interested. I'm so excited you're, you could, yeah. And so when is that hospital opening? Yay. When is, when's it opening? We are hoping for summer, uh, but you know, construction stuff and how all that stuff goes and who knows if we have another blizzard here or whatever. So <laughs> we will, we will see, but we're, we're shooting for summer. That's great. Um, I will put a link to all of these things that they have discussed, including the conference in Canada, um, in our show notes. So that way you guys can get as much information on the CBD, the CBG, the CBN, the limonene and the linalool and all the other different things um, that you can read about and make some flashcards. Try to memorize them. That's what I did. Um, anyway, thank you so much to Liz and Stephen for being on this podcast. Uh, I'm sure we could talk for a, a huge amount of time um, on these products and their mechanism of action and everything. I encourage everyone to go to the VetCan Academy website and get more information uh, and also so check out their textbook because it is a wealth of information. So thank you guys so much for being yeah, on the podcast. Thanks for having us. 